am really excited to be with y'all again today. Um, but if you are anything like me, Numbers was not the book of the Bible that um, was being begged to be studied, right? Um, or one that you really even assumed had a lot of connection to your modern day life. If I'm being completely honest, my familiarity with the book of Numbers for the majority of my Christian life has started and stopped with those lists of horribly cheesy Christian pickup lines. And there was always one on that list that read like, Hey, I was looking in the book of Numbers this week, and I realized I didn't have yours. Ew. <laughs> Absolutely. Ew. And one can only hope that that line was never said in earnest, right? But if I learned anything working in campus ministry for four years, it is to never underestimate the crazy ideas and antics that get um, tossed around and make their way through Christian dating culture. So who knows? Um, and in all honesty, like what we read in this book, in the book of Numbers, seems just as cringeworthy as a cheesy pickup line, but cringy in just a very different way. For the majority of the book, we are not shown Israel at its best. Um, by most scholars' accounts, we are just over a year from the Exodus, from a miraculous display of God's power and his provision, in which Yahweh introduced himself to his people as a covenant God who desires to relate to his chosen people Israel personally and permanently. But the people who witnessed the plagues, who walked through the Red Sea, the people who watched manna fall from heaven, who were physically rescued from their slavery, are unable to trust the Lord for the next part of the journey. Maybe you've been tempted, or maybe you know someone right who said something like, ugh, it would just be so much easier to believe if I witnessed a miracle, if I saw God just like write something in the sky, or it would be so much easier to make this decision about this thing going on in my life if God just came down and told me what to do. I would do it, just give me a sign. It gets easy for us to default into this thinking that all it would take is a miracle and we would never doubt again. In Numbers, this fantasy of ours is just absolutely demolished and crushed. We see a generation whose mere existence is miraculous after being born into oppression and slavery still rebel. Um, that should tell us something about the human condition, but more on that later. First, I wanna set the stage a little bit for this book that we are looking at together this week. Um, so, right, Nancy talks about the original title of this book is In the Wilderness, um, not Numbers. That is from the Greek translation of the book. Um, but honestly, like, kind of both make sense. Like, right, we've, we're spending a lot of time in the wilderness in this book. But um, the Greek translation called it Numbers because it refers to the beginning of the book in which um, all the members of each tribe of Israel are counted for. Um, and that's occurring at the opening of the text. And as the Lord instructs the people how to set up camp around the tent of meeting, and as they prepare to embark on their journey from Sinai to the promised land, there are a lot of preparations to be done. It kind of feels reminiscent of like getting ready for a school trip, right? You've got this like long list of instructions for packing. They're calling the roll. There are all these last minute rules regarding appropriate safety and behavior. The Israelites have not journeyed or moved since Exodus 18 um, when they arrived at the base of Mount Sinai. So if you know, there's a timeline that I put at the beginning of your outline. They've been encamped for about 11 months, and it's in this season. Um, we have been studying right for the past like six weeks. We've been kind of zoomed in on this 11-month period. And now we're about to cover 40 years in 30 minutes. Huzzah. So <laughs> best of luck to us all. Um, at the base of Sinai, right, they built the tabernacle. They received the law. And in that time, God has been emphasizing his holiness and his presence. So why the shift? Why does Numbers start with a census? That's a, a great question. It's time for the Israelites, right, to start to prepare for this next phase of the journey. They're getting one step closer to the land promised to Abraham and his descendants all the way back in Genesis 12. In all of his interactions, God is motivated by this covenant relationship. 
He promised Abraham a multitude of descendants that would become a great nation. He promised him land, specifically the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And also he promised that Abraham's descendants would be a family through which all the other families of the earth would be blessed. The Israelites have always been set apart for this role as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, a people through which God intends to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. Even here at the beginning of Numbers, as God is giving instructions for travel to a particular people in a particular moment in history, he is fulfilling his covenant in which he had you and me in mind. And this census is God's next instruction to get God's people closer to the land he promised them so that they might assume their role of living out God's mission and extending God's presence to fill the entire world. So the text, Numbers 1, um, 2 through 4, tells us that the Lord instructed Moses and Aaron to take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years older or more and able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each of them the head of his family, is to help you. So the first step before the Israelites can begin their journey is to assess who they are as a military power. Claiming the land is going to require military action. And as we start numbers, we have entered into right again this practical planning phase. And so the details are practical are for, are for practical for the sake of planning. Um, we have seen throughout the Pentateuch that God loves and favors detailed plans, and numbers is no exception. The Lord has appointed a leader for each tribe, and each man older than 20 is counted, and the total number is somewhere around 600,000. And the Levites, right, they get excluded from this count because they are um, have a specific role, the priesthood, regarding the tabernacle, which Megan led us through last week. And of course, all the women and any men under the age of 20 are also excluded. So most scholars are estimating that the Israelites number around 200, or sorry, 2 million people at this point. Um, to put that into perspective, right, the most recent population numbers for Fort Worth have us around 919,000. Houston is around 2.3 million people. So we're talking about somewhere between the cities of Fort Worth and Houston wandering around in the desert. And when we get to numbers that big, I honestly just have a really hard time conceptualizing the sheer magnitude. Um, but understanding, I think, the scale of the Israelites' population gives me, one, so much more compassion for Moses as a leader. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> um, and two, just all that they were like able to organize, unite, and accomplish anything. A 40-year military road trip with 2 million people is actually, I think, the last thing I'm willing to sign up for <laughs> at this point in my life. Um, and chapter one ends with a report of success. Just like they had faithfully built the tabernacle, the Israelites complete the census just as the Lord has commanded. Chapter 2 contains a similar report, but this time regarding the way each tribe will be camped around the tent of meeting, each family to reside some distance from the tent, but under, under a banner distinguishing their family from the others. And Numbers 3 um, through 10 continues in a similar fashion. God continues to instruct Moses and Aaron to have the Israelites do things regarding preparations for their departure from Sinai, and they continue to fulfill them. The census is taken of the Levites, and they're given specific roles for what transporting the tabernacle will look like, which we know is going to be no small task. Um, the laws regarding the camp's purity and the roles of the priests are given. The tabernacle itself is dedicated, and then the Israelites transition into getting ready to depart for the promised land. Things are looking up. Numbers 10 ends with the Israelites embarking on their journey, and it reads as follows. So they set out from the mountain, the Lord, and traveled for three days. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. 
Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousand of Israel. The Israelites are ready to follow the great cloud and pillar in the presence of the Lord. Um, so my family loves outdoor activities because of my grandparents. I have been able to spend a lot of time in Bozeman, Montana, where we do like a lot of hiking and camping and fishing. We go to Yellowstone every year. Um, in the winter, we're doing like snowshoeing and downhill skiing. My parents are still trying to convince me that cross-country skiing is a fun thing to do, and I'm not buying it. <laughs> um, but some of my favorite family memories center around being outside, and it is something that I am just really incredibly thankful for. But all these activities, right, they require a lot of planning, a lot of being prepared. And we kind of joke that my mom is the Boy Scout, so to speak, of our family because she is the one that we can always count on to be prepared. I don't know if any of the moms out there relate to that. But extra layers of clothing, she's got them. Extra snacks, extra water, she's got them. The notes on her phone are absolutely meticulous, keeping track of packing lists, um, favorite picnic spots, what she would do differently next time. Her mantra is, look ahead, think ahead, see ahead, which is simultaneously a blessing and a curse to have grown up with my whole life. Um, but reading this section of numbers, I couldn't help but think of my mom as I saw each detail for the journey being checked off and laid out. Um, but no matter how much preparation my mom does, she's also notorious for what I call planting a seed of doubt. I think I stole the phrase from Elizabeth Elliot, but she's notorious for planting a seed of doubt like 20 minutes before we are about to load up the car or hit the trail. A last minute weather check, or maybe it's even just like this weariness from all the preparing and planning she's doing. She always is asking the question, are we really sure we wanna go? And at this point, my dad and my brother and I usually just roll our eyes and we pile in the car and we proceed to have a great time. And if not a great time, right, we have a great story to tell about getting caught in the rain or lost momentarily. Um, but I think this anxiety is something that we can all relate to. No matter how prepared we feel, there is still an element of the unknown that we are forced to confront at the precipice of each new journey or even each new day. And as we leave Numbers 10, despite their following of the Lord's instructions to the T and the way that he has over and over again proven his trustworthiness, the Israelites act out of anxiety and they plant a seed of doubt that calls into question not their own preparations, but the instructions and the promises of the Lord. It only takes three days for things to shift absolutely dramatically. Numbers 11 starts with the first of seven examples of the Israelites' belief, or the Israelites' unbelief in the instructions and the promises of the Lord. It reads, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed the, some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the place was called Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Desmond Alexander in his book, Paradise to Promised Land, which I've referenced before, helps identify the cycle and the pattern that's gonna define God and Israel's relationship in this season. And by season, I mean the 40 years in which Israel is in the wilderness. So here's the cycle that we see repeated over and over again. One, the Israelites complain, and this is gonna come in a variety of form and some fashions. And two, then God's anger is going to be roused against the people because of this complaint. Three, as a result, they are divinely punished. As we see in this example from Numbers 1, God's anger comes in the form of a fire. Four, Moses is going to mediate, right? He'll pray for the people on behalf of, or he'll pray to the Lord on behalf of the people. And five, the Lord will respond by limiting the punishment. And then six, a particular name reflecting some aspect of what has occurred is given to the location of that event. And at the heart of each Israelite complaint is this lack of faith, is this planted seed of doubt 
being given what it needs to grow. In their grumbling and complaining, it gets revealed that the physical cravings of the Israelites are louder than the steady and sufficient provision of the Lord. Ian Duguid is an Old Testament professor in Pennsylvania, and he puts it this way. This is kind of an incoming lengthy quote, but it was just so good I couldn't leave it out. Um, so Ian Duguid says, What are the chief temptations of life in the wilderness? The first temptation is surely the danger of losing the plot. The people of Israel were constantly tempted to doubt that there really was a promised land ahead. All they could see with their eyes was the barrenness of the wilderness. All they could hear with their ears was the howling wasteland around them. All they could taste on their tongues was the hunger and thirst of the wilderness. The wilderness was very real. The obstacles in terms of opposition and lack of resources were very visible, while the promised land seemed very remote. Life must have seemed to be a succession of completely unrelated and random events that were getting them nowhere. They surely felt as if their whole lives were slipping away from them in one meaningless round of unsatisfying experiences. 40 years is a long time, and I cannot truly begin to imagine what life on the road really looked like for this traveling group of 2 million people. A psychologist will make the case that anger is a secondary emotion meaning that there is another motivating emotion that is manifesting itself in anger. And the common primary emotions that are kind of at the root of our anger usually get pointed out to be fear and sadness. And this has always really made a lot of sense to me. And I'm starting to understand doubt similarly. Doubt, I think, is a secondary emotion. It's the manifestation of something deeper in our hearts. I had a seminary professor put it this way, the opposite of faith is not doubt, the opposite of faith is despair. And in the barrenness of the wilderness, in the face of so much unknown regarding the day-to-day -day aspects of life, the Israelites have fallen into despair. They are believing what Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible calls the terrible lie that entered the, heart, um, entered the human heart at the fall. God doesn't love me. As I mentioned earlier, witnessing a miracle is not enough. The hearts the Israelites have shown up with have been bruised and broken by the fall, and they're defaulted for rebellion and rebellion is what occurs in Numbers 13. The Israelites outright refuse to believe that the Lord will fulfill his promise to make a way for them to claim the promised land. Scouts come back from the promised land and the report there is that the people that they are on this military journey to defeat are absolutely undefeatable. That the Israelites stand no chance and are mere grasshoppers in comparison. In response, the Israelites cry out and complain. They no longer want to follow Yahweh, preferring to return to life in Egypt and they plan to appoint a new leader. In response to this rebellion, the Lord hears Moses' prayer on behalf of the people, and he forgives them. But their rebellion, their rejection of the covenant has consequences. The Lord declares that none of the Israelites who witnessed the miracle of the Exodus will come to see the promised land, except for the two of the scouts who remain faithful, Caleb and Joshua. Wounded by this punishment, the Israelites try to achieve a military victory without the Lord. They try to see if they can go and get to the promised land on their own and they suffer a pretty severe defeat at the hands of the Canaanites. And this pattern, right, of rebellion, forgiveness, but also consequences just continues to repeat itself. And so what Israel is in need of is a great pattern interruption. And in this strange story that occurs in Numbers 22 through 24, they get a taste of what God is going to do ultimately to break this cycle. Hope persists. The Israelites are coming off a military victory over the Amorites. Right, even in the midst of the rebellion, God is still making a way for them to enter the promised land. And upon seeing the military prowess, um, the king of the Moabites, a man named Balak, recognizes that he needs some sort of external help, and he summons a guy named Balaam. 
We're not given a lot of information about who Balaam is, but the king entrusts him with the following instructions. A people has come out of Egypt, the king says. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Despite physical, monetary, and political pressure from the king of the Moabites, Balaam has an encounter with the Lord and is unable to fulfill the requests. There's more to the story than we have time to unpack, but ultimately Balak is called for Balaam to curse Israel. And let's be real, we've seen Israel's behavior up to this point again and again, how they've acted in rebellion against God. A curse for them kind of makes sense. Yet all Balaam can do is bless them. He gives a series of messages, one of which is a prophecy that reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheph. Edom will be conquered, Sarah his enemy will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and, and destroy the survivors of the city. Here in the wilderness, among rebellion and battle, a man who does not belong to God and speaks only for his own gain cannot help but prophesy that the trajectory of all things has already been set, that God's covenant promises will be fulfilled. That is Brian Habig, a pastor at Downtown Prez in Greenville, South Carolina, aptly put, um, that biblical, biblical certainty is that God will do something about everything, just not yet. Even in the midst of the wilderness and their rebellion, Israel cannot escape signs of God keeping his promise. God never ceases to relate to his people from his covenant. There are real consequences for unbelief. The generation right that experienced the Exodus, including their leaders, Moses and Aaron, are told they will die before entering the promised land, but God never removes his presence from his people. The ark accompanies them everywhere they go. God's covenant continues to be personal and permanent. And the prophecy tells us that this cycle of grumbling and complaining and rebellion will not be forever. The enemies of God will be eliminated by a king who will emerge from Israel. Another act of salvation is on the move. And the call for Israel is to not lose sight of the bigger story that they are participating in. So what does this have to do with us? How are we connected to this part of the story? Our call is the same as Israel's. Do not lose sight of the plot. But we, um, but what we have to learn from what, what do we have to learn from reading about Israel in the wilderness? So Brian Habig again, he was a huge help for me in drawing this connection clearly. Honestly, I contemplated just pressing play on one of his sermons from 2017 because it was so good. Um, but if I say kind of anything as we're kind of wrapping this up, and you're like, wow, that was really profound. It's probably because I snagged it from him. So thank you, Brian. Um, but anyway, as we've seen, there is a lot going on in numbers. But at the end of the day, what it really is about is a generation walking in the in-between, in the already and the not yet. They have experienced firsthand God's greatest act of salvation prior to Jesus coming, the Exodus. But the full fulfillment of redemption's promises, the full experience of covenant relationship is not yet theirs. They have not yet arrived in the land promised to them. They are weary. They have been traveling for 40 years. Just the practical implications of living as a people on the road with, most question, with more questions than answers is exhausting to think about. It's easy to lose sight of how they have lost sight of their promised narrative and promised identity, to lose sight of their assured trajectory they are walking towards, the plot they are participating in. At this point, as Habig puts it, in the wilderness, God's promises feel more like an abstraction and a platitude. The wilderness is like the long winter in Narnia, 
the whispers of Aslan's return feel more like a fairy tale than an actual promise. Does this sound familiar? Because we too are a wilderness generation. I'm starting to look around the world um, and say, hmm, this feels kind of like numbers. We live between our great exodus and what God accomplished for us in We live between our great exodus, right? What God accomplished for us in Christ and a secured but not yet experienced promised land and inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. One day we will tangibly and physically experience it, but in the meantime, it often feels to us like an abstraction and a platitude in relation to the things that are screaming for our attention now. And there is so much in our world screaming for our attention right now whether it's an actual screaming child, a culture who defaults to outrage over compassion and understanding, broken systems, broken relationships, broken bodies, like do good identified in the Israelites, it can surely feel as if our whole lives are slipping away from us in one meaningless round of unsatisfying experiences. As we walk <coughs> in this time of the already but not yet, we don't get, Brian Habig says, a timeline or a sense of efficiency. And we love timelines and we love efficiency. <laughs> we track packages, we map places, even though we know how to get there just to see what the fastest route is going to be. We think that timeline and efficiency is something that we desperately need. And nothing makes it clear to me that these are priorities in my life than airplane travel. <laughs> I am mostly traveling by myself these days. So I think my perspective might be a little different, but I'm sure on some level you can relate. As I wait for security, I am actively watching right all the lines, trying to figure out which one is gonna be the fastest. The family with small children has gone that way, so I will go this way. <laughs> um, then I get really strategic, right, about where I'm going to sit at the gate, and I roll my eyes at all the people who are probably going to board with me in group six, but they've popped up and they think that they are minutes from getting on the plane when they start the boarding process with platinum premium gold status, whatever it's called. And I get annoyed just at the overall efficiency of the boarding process still. Why don't we board from back to front? I'll never understand. <laughs> and when I get on the plane, right, if it's a plane with a screen, I am watching the flight tracker. I want to know how much longer it's going to be until we land this thing. And then once we land, I feel like I'm in a race, but only against myself, to grab my carry-on and do plane in a way that slows no one else down. <laughs> and the airport might be an extreme and a silly example, but we long for things to be efficient, and we long to know how, things, uh, how long things are going to take in all areas of life. In circumstances that cause stress, in the face of injustice, in our fear of the unknown, with the psalmist we cry, how long, O Lord? And it is these cries for mercy that can often get skewed by cynicism and grumblings and despair. Like the Israelites, we grow to believe that God is withholding, that God is absent, that God is indifferent, that we would be better off without him. One of the most impactful chapters of theological writing I think I've ever read comes from Paul E. Miller's book, A Praying Life. 10 out of 10 would recommend this book, but especially his chapters on cynicism. Miller identifies that cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Cynicism, or this kind of defeated weariness he calls it, questions the active goodness of God on our behalf. Cynicism is wilderness weary, or maybe even cynicism is a native of the wilderness. It creates a numbness towards life and its absence of timelines and efficiency. It operates out of this assurance that everyone has an angle, it is the gasoline that gets poured on the fire set by the great lie. Again, as Sally Lloyd-Jones writes, God doesn't love me. But if the wilderness lacks timeline and efficiency, it never is truly absent of God's promises and God's presence. God does love us. He has knit together a story from the beginning in which the plot over and over again 
points to this as our reality. God relates to us in covenant both personally and permanently. And as we have seen this semester, God's character has been on display in acts of power, in the symbolisms and the intentions of the blueprint of a design, in the laws that point us to flourishing in his holiness. In all of this, he has been communicating and fulfilling his covenant promise. God's very nature makes it impossible for him to be anything but faithful to that which he has promised. And not once does God's presence leave the Israelite camp. God instructed the Israelites to build the tabernacle so he can dwell among them, and he faithfully remains there with them even as they turn from him. And with the advent of the Spirit of God's presence, um, it cannot and will not ever leave us even in our complaints. God is no stranger to our cynicism and the ways that we rebel in the wilderness. Even in creation, he had a plan to break this cycle through the ultimate salvation that is ours in Christ. Balaam was unable to curse Israel and prophesied that the enemies of the Lord would be permanently crushed by a descendant of Israel. We have heard and come to know Jesus, who this prophecy points to. The trajectory of all things towards renewal and redemption has been set to work on our behalf, but also it's been set to work in spite of our failings. It is incredibly personal to us and for us, but its permanence is not dependent on us. Through the Spirit, we are invited to believe and participate. And God also is no stranger to the temptations that exist in the wilderness. As Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In the Gospels, we enter a story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in which he is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he is tempted to create food for himself. He's tempted to test God's resolve for his own life, and he's tempted to offer uh, by this offer of dominion with the devil in exchange just for bowing down with him. And which each, with each offer, Jesus rejects temptation by leaning into the promises of God. As Paul Miller writes, in the darkness or the wilderness, Jesus doesn't analyze what he doesn't know, he clings to what he knows. There is so much unknown in the wilderness which we reside. Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying, nothing is certain in this life except for death and taxes. And I'd like to amend the statement to say that nothing is certain in this life except for God's promises and God's presence. Something I used to tell my college students when they were wrestling with the decision in which the outcome was unknown and they were craving this divine miracle of being told what to do was that God invites us to be sponges and not robots. God's invitation for us is to not live as robots in the wilderness, task-oriented, obedient, without understanding or relationship. Instead, like Christ, the invitation is for us to live as sponges, so full of an understanding of God's character and his promises that when we get squeezed or tempted, he is what comes out. Our call is to be saturated in the story that he has for us. When we are saturated in the story, if a situation looks dire and dim, or we feel trapped or unworthy of rescue, we are caught believing the lie that God doesn't love us, we see that experience not through our own limitations and mistakes, but instead through the lens of who God is and the way he rescues us for personal and permanent relationship. Living as sponges in the wilderness is by no means an easy calling, but it is a beautiful one full of hope as we praise God for what has been accomplished for us in Christ, as we take comfort in his presence among us, and as we cling to the promise of our full experience of the new heavens and the new earth where the old order of the wilderness will have passed away. All glory be to God. Thanks. Um, I'll pray for us, and then we can start having discussion. Um, Father God, we do not understand the wilderness often.
but we do understand that your promises and your presence are consistent with us no matter what. Might we be sponges so full of your good story, so full of how it is our story too, that in seasons of temptation and series of weariness and seasons of doubt, um, all that comes out of us is you and your promises. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.